0: Chapter 6 of the Montessori Method. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Preston McConkey. The Montessori Method by Maria Montessori, translated by Anne E. George. Chapter 6, How Lessons Should Be Given. Let all thy words be counted. Dante, Inferno Canto x given the fact that through the regime of liberty the pupils can manifest their natural tendencies in the school and that with this in view we have prepared the environment and the materials the objects with which the child is to work the teacher must not limit her action to observation but must proceed to experiment in this method the lesson corresponds to an experiment The more fully the teacher is acquainted with the methods of experimental psychology, the better will she understand how to give the lesson. Indeed, a special technique is necessary if the method is to be properly applied. The teacher must at least have attended the training classes in the children's houses in order to acquire a knowledge of the fundamental principles of the method and to understand their application. The most difficult portion of this training is that which refers to the method for discipline in the first days of the school the children do not learn the idea of collective order this idea follows and comes as a result of those disciplinary exercises through which the child learns to discern between good and evil this being the case it is evident that at the outset the teacher cannot give collective lessons Such lessons, indeed, will always be very rare, since the children, being free, are not obliged to remain in their places quiet and ready to listen to the teacher, or to watch what she is doing. The collective lessons, in fact, are of very secondary importance, and have almost been abolished by us. Characteristics of the Individual Lessons Conciseness, Simplicity, Objectivity The lessons, then, are individual, and brevity must be one of their chief characteristics. Dante gives excellent advice to teachers when he says, Let thy words be counted. The more carefully we cut away useless words, the more perfect will become the lesson. And in preparing the lessons which she is to give, the teacher must pay special attention to this point, counting and weighing the value of the words which she is to speak. Another characteristic of the quality of the lesson in the children's houses, is its simplicity. It must be stripped of all that is not absolute truth. That the teacher must not lose herself in vain words is included in the first quality of conciseness. The second, then, is closely related to the first. That is, the carefully chosen words must be the most simple it is possible to find, and must refer to the truth. The third quality of the lesson is its objectivity. The lesson must be presented in such a way that the personality of the teacher shall disappear. There shall remain in evidence only the object to which he wishes to call the attention of the child. This brief and simple lesson must be considered by the teacher as an explanation of the object, and of the use which the child can make of it. In the giving of such lessons, the fundamental guide must be the method of observation, in which is included and understood the liberty of the child so the teacher shall observe whether the child interests himself in the object how he is interested in it for how long etc even noticing the expression of his face and she must take great care not to offend the principles of liberty for if she provokes the child to make an unnatural effort she will no longer know what is the spontaneous activity of the child if therefore the lesson rigorously prepared in this brevity simplicity and truth is not understood by the child is not accepted by him as an explanation of the object the teacher must be warned of two things first not to insist by repeating the lesson and second not to make the child feel that he has made a mistake or that he is not understood because in doing so she will cause him to make an effort to understand and will thus alter the natural state which must be used by her in making her psychological observation a few examples may serve to illustrate this point let us suppose for example that the teacher wishes to teach a child the two colors red and blue she desires to attract the attention of the child to the object she says therefore look at this then in order to teach the colors she says showing him the red this is red raising her voice a little and pronouncing the word red slowly and clearly then showing him the other color this is blue in order to make sure that the child has understood she says to him give me the red give me the blue let us suppose that the child in following this last direction makes a mistake the teacher does not repeat and does not insist she smiles gives the child a friendly caress and takes away the colors teachers ordinarily are greatly surprised at such simplicity they often say but everybody knows how to do that indeed this again is a little like the egg of christopher columbus but the truth is that not everyone knows how to do this simple thing to give a lesson with such simplicity to measure one's own activity to make it conform to these standards of clearness brevity and truth is practically a very difficult matter especially is this true of teachers prepared by the old-time methods who have learned to labor to deluge the child with useless and often false words for example a teacher who had taught in the public schools often reverted to collectivity now in giving a collective lesson much importance is necessarily given to the simple thing which is to be taught and it is necessary to oblige all the children to follow the teacher's explanation, when perhaps not all of them are disposed to give their attention to the particular lesson in hand. The teacher has perhaps commenced her lesson in this way, "'Children, see if you can guess what I have in my hand!' She knows that the children cannot guess, and she therefore attracts their attention by means of a falsehood. Then she probably says, "'Children, look out at the sky. Have you ever looked at it before?' Have you ever noticed it at night, when it is all shining with stars? No. Look at my apron. Do you know what color it is? Doesn't it seem to you the same color as the sky? Very well, then. Look at this color I have in my hand. It is the same color as the sky and my apron. It is blue. Now look around you a little and see if you can find something in the room which is blue. And do you know what color cherries are? and the colour of the burning coals in the fireplace, etc., etc. Now, in the mind of the child, after he has made the useless effort of trying to guess, there revolves a confused mass of ideas. The sky, the apron, the cherries, etc. It will be difficult for him to extract from all this confusion the idea which it was the scope of the lesson to make clear to him, namely, the recognition of the two colours, blue and red such a work of selection is almost impossible for the mind of a child who is not yet able to follow a long discourse i remember being present at an arithmetic lesson where the children were being taught that two and three make five to this end the teacher made use of a counting board having colored beads strung on its thin wires she arranged for example two beads on the top line then on a lower line three and at the bottom five beads i do not remember very clearly the development of this lesson but i do know that the teacher found it necessary to place beside the two beads on the upper wire a little cardboard dancer with a blue skirt which she christened on the spot the name of one of the children in the class saying this is mariatina and then beside the other three beads she placed a little dancer dressed in a different color which she called Jegina. I do not know exactly how the teacher arrived at the demonstration of the sum, but certainly she talked for a long time with these little dancers, moving them about, etc. If I remember the dancers more clearly than I do the arithmetic process, how must it have been with the children? If by such a method they were able to learn that two and three make five, they must have made a tremendous mental effort, and the teacher must have found it necessary to talk with the little dancers for a long time. In another lesson, a teacher wished to demonstrate to the children the difference between noise and sound. She began by telling a long story to the children. Then suddenly, someone in league with her knocked noisily at the door. The teacher stopped and cried out, "'What is it? What's happened? What is the matter? "'Children, do you know what this person at the door has done? "'I can no longer go on with my story. I cannot remember it any more. "'I will have to leave it unfinished.' do you know what has happened? Did you hear? Have you understood? That was a noise. That is a noise. Oh, I would much rather play with this little baby, taking up a mandolin, which she had dressed up in a table cover. Yes, dear baby, I had rather play with you. Do you see this baby that I am holding in my arms? Several children replied, it isn't a baby. Others said, it's a mandolin." The teacher went on, "'No, no, it is a baby, really, a baby. I love this little baby. Do you want me to show you that it is a baby?' "'Keep very, very quiet, then. It seems to me that the baby is crying, or perhaps it is talking, or perhaps it is going to say Papa or mamma. Putting her hand under the cover, she touched the strings of the mandolin. "'There! Did you hear the baby cry? Did you hear it call out?' The children cried out, "'It's a mandolin! You touched the strings! You made it play!' the teacher then replied be quiet be quiet children listen to what i am going to do then she uncovered the mandolin and began to play on it saying this is sound to suppose that the child from such a lesson as this shall come to understand the difference between noise and sound is ridiculous the child will probably get the impression that the teacher wished to play a joke and that she is rather foolish because she lost the thread of her discourse when she was interrupted by noise and because she mistook a mandolin for a baby most certainly it is the figure of the teacher herself that is impressed upon the child's mind through such a lesson and not the object for which the lesson was given to obtain a simple lesson from a teacher who has been prepared according to the ordinary methods is a very difficult task i remember that after having explained the material fully and in detail i called upon one of my teachers to teach by means of the geometric insets the difference between a square and a triangle the task of the teacher was simply to fit a square and a triangle of wood into the empty spaces made to receive them she should then have shown the child how to follow with his finger the contours of the wooden pieces and of the frames into which they fit saying meanwhile this is a square this is a triangle THE TEACHER WHOM I HAD CALLED UPON BEGAN BY HAVING THE CHILD TOUCH THE SQUARE, SAYING, THIS IS A LINE, ANOTHER, ANOTHER, AND ANOTHER. THERE ARE FOUR LINES. COUNT THEM WITH YOUR LITTLE FINGER AND TELL ME HOW MANY THERE ARE. AND THE CORNERS. COUNT THE CORNERS. FEEL THEM WITH YOUR LITTLE FINGER. SEE, THERE ARE FOUR CORNERS, TOO. LOOK AT THIS PIECE WELL. IT IS A SQUARE i corrected the teacher telling her that in this way she was not teaching the child to recognize a form but was giving him an idea of sides of angles of number and that this was a very different thing from that which she was to teach in this lesson but she said trying to justify herself it is the same thing it is not however the same thing it is the geometric analysis and the mathematics of the thing it would be possible to have an idea of the form of the quadrilateral without knowing how to count to four and therefore without appreciating the number of sides and angles the sides and the angles are abstractions which in themselves do not exist that which does exist is this piece of wood of a determined form the elaborate explanations of the teacher not only confused the child's mind but bridged over the distance that lies between the concrete and the abstract between the form of an object and the mathematics of the form let us suppose i said to the teacher that an architect shows you a dome the form of which interests you he can follow one of two methods in showing you his work he can call attention to the beauty of the line the harmony of the proportions and may then take you inside the building and up into the cupola itself in order that you may appreciate the relative proportion of the parts in such a way that your impression of the cupola as a whole shall be founded on general knowledge of its parts or he can have you count the windows the wide or narrow cornices and can in fact make you a design showing the construction He can illustrate for you the static laws, and write out the algebraic formulae necessary in the calculation of such laws. In the first place, you will be able to retain in your mind the form of the cupola. In the second, you will have understood nothing, and will come away with the impression that the architect fancied himself speaking to a fellow engineer, instead of to a traveler, whose object was to become familiar with the beautiful things around him. Very much the same thing happens if we, instead of saying to the child, this is a square, and by simply having him touch the contour, establish materially the idea of the form, proceed rather to a geometrical analysis of the contour. Indeed, we should feel that we are making the child precocious if we taught him the geometric forms in the plane, presenting at the same time the mathematical concept. But we do not believe that the child is too immature to appreciate the simple form on the contrary it is no effort for a child to look at a square window or table he sees all these forms about him in his daily life to call his attention to a determined form is to clarify the impression he has already received of it and to fix the idea of it it is very much as if while we are looking absent-mindedly at the shore of a lake an artist should suddenly say to us how beautiful the curve is that the shore makes there under the shade of that cliff at his words the view which we have been observing almost unconsciously is impressed upon our minds as if it had been illuminated by a sudden ray of sunshine and we experience the joy of having crystallized an impression which we had before only imperfectly felt and such is our duty toward the child to give a ray of light and to go on our way I may liken the effects of these first lessons to the impressions of one who walks quietly, happily through a wood, alone and thoughtful, letting his inner life unfold freely. Suddenly the chime of a distant bell recalls him to himself, and in that awakening he feels more strongly than before the peace and beauty of which he has been but dimly conscious. To stimulate life, leaving it then free to develop, to unfold, herein lies the first task of the educator in such a delicate task a great art must suggest the moment and limit the intervention in order that we shall arouse no perturbation cause no deviation but rather that we shall help the soul which is coming into the fullness of life and which shall live from its own forces this art must accompany the scientific method when the teacher shall have touched in this way soul for soul each one of her pupils awakening and inspiring the life within them as if she were an invisible spirit she will then possess each soul and a sign a single word from her shall suffice for each one will feel her in a living and vital way will recognize her and will listen to her there will come a day when the directress herself shall be filled with wonder to see that all the children obey her with gentleness and affection not only ready but intent at a sign from her they will look toward her who has made them live and will hope and desire to receive from her new life experience has revealed all this and it is something which forms the chief source of wonder for those who visit the children's houses collective discipline is obtained as if by magic force fifty or sixty children from two and a half years to six years of age all together and at a single time know how to hold their peace so perfectly that the absolute silence seems that of a desert and if the teacher speaking in a low voice says to the children rise pass several times around the room on the tips of your toes and then come back to your place in silence altogether as a single person the children rise and follow the order with the least possible noise the teacher with that one voice has spoken to each one and each child hopes from her intervention to receive some light and inner happiness and feeling so he goes forth intent and obedient like an anxious explorer following the order in his own way in this matter of discipline we have again something of the egg of christopher columbus a concertmaster must prepare his scholars one by one in order to draw from their collective work great and beautiful harmony and each artist must perfect himself as an individual before he can be ready to follow the voiceless commands of the master's baton how different is the method which we follow in the public schools it is as if a concertmaster taught the same monotonous and sometimes discordant rhythm contemporaneously to the most diverse instruments and voices thus we find that the most disciplined members of society are the men who are best trained who have most thoroughly perfected themselves but this is the training or the perfection acquired through contact with other people the perfection of the collectivity cannot be that material and brutal solidarity which comes from mechanical organization alone in regard to infant psychology we are more richly endowed with prejudices than with actual knowledge bearing upon the subject we have until the present day wished to dominate the child through force by the imposition of external laws instead of making an interior conquest of the child in order to direct him as a human soul in this way the children have lived beside us without being able to make us know them but if we cut away the artificiality with which we have enwrapped them and the violence through which we have foolishly thought to discipline them they will reveal themselves to us in all the truth of child nature their gentleness is so absolute so sweet that we recognize in it the infancy of that humanity which can remain oppressed by every form of yoke by every injustice and the child's love of knowledge, is such that it surpasses every other love, and makes us think that, in very truth, humanity must carry within it that passion which pushes the minds of men to the successive conquest of thought, making easier from century to century the yokes of every form of slavery. End of chapter six, How Lessons Should Be Given. Recording by Preston McConkie, Annabella, Utah.